1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bruno Shirley, a co-host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Evyatar Shulman about his new book, Visions of the Buddha, Creative Dimensions of Early Buddhist Scripture. Tadi, welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, nice it's, to be here. Such a delight. it's such a delight to have you here um, and be talking about this book. I've mentioned this to you before we started recording, but I'm so excited about it. I think it offers such a, I don't know, a profound and innovative argument about like how we should be reading Buddhist scripture generally in the Pali canon in particular. I am hundred percent guilty of doing all the things you sort of warn us against in this book and, and skipping over, um, you know, the, the sort of boring narrative parts to get to the proper philosophical stuff. And this has really radically changed the way that I read at least. So it's, it's a stunning, stunning work.
0: Well, thanks a lot, but just to say I'm just as guilty as anyone, Um, and when I was getting serious about um, kind of doing philosophy and especially studying early Buddhist philosophy, I began to realize that there's um, something wrong with the way we're approaching the text, that we're just reading through what the authors of the text were trying to do and what, what they actually left us with. And then just picking up the passages of our choice that happen to fit our particular interests and look good in like some logical sequence we we fancy. and, um, and then put some argument together and I just realized that the method the method didn't work, that theres a different level that the texts are working on, and I wanted to uncover that. in a sense, the book is um, kind of tracing my path of investigation um, in order to understand what the texts are. And hopefully this will be followed eventually by, by a study also of early Buddhist philosophy that, that, that takes, that it's, it's like a methodological backdrop in order to analyze anything we want in the text, not only philosophy, and also, for example, sociology.
1: So before we really sort of follow in your footsteps on that path there, um, I was wondering if we could, um, we could start maybe by just just talking a little about who you are and how you came to be interested in this general topic of buddhist literature you mentioned you started um with the serious philosophy so what was your path to get from there to here or even to there in the first place
0: yeah so um well you know it's kind of hard to understand how um karma is calculated or, or you know to put it more simply how i made it to to do what i do i was a young student in the university, um, very kind of uh, interested in big questions, just still trying to figure out who I am and what I'm supposed to do. And I was studying psychology. It was really boring, um, didn't say anything about soul or meaning or, or truth. And, um, suddenly I, on this chance to find Buddhism, I was, I was just, I knew I, I, I started studying Tibetan, uh, just so it'd be something exciting enough to get my mind going. And then from there, it was a pretty slippery slope, um, And I was writing my papers, like my seminar papers at the advanced VA level on Buddhism. And then I kept going into an MA. And by the time my MA was finished, I just had to read Nagarjuna in Sanskrit. Um, I hadn't studied Sanskrit by then. I was working in Tibetan. And um, so that's what I did for my PhD. And so my, my early work is very philosophical. Uh, My earlier publications are on Madhyamaka. Some people still identify me more as a Madhyamaka scholar. Um, And uh, By the time I was done with that, um, I never even published that as a book because I was kind of running ahead to this uh, Pali world. I kind of was beginning to realize that in order to really understand the garden, I had to understand what the Buddhist project is more generally and then that kind of led to um, my first book, Rethinking the Buddha. Um, the subtitle says more about what it is. What it is. It's uh, early um, Buddhist philosophy as meditative perception. In a sense, it kind of anticipates the arguments in, in this book um, on a philosophical level or, uh, in a very initial kind of way Um so, I basically coming through this philosophical approach, um, and then realizing, as I said earlier, that the next step would be to figure out well, I, before that, actually, there's another sub step. I realized that in order to understand the philosophy, I got to understand what they mean by Buddha. It's not such a self evident category. Uh, really is not just a prince who go up here and there and Went through those kind of idealized stages of his life, right? I mean, the, the traditional story begins with him in Tosita to Heaven, and you know, the gods ask him to be born. So these are not just, you know, addition to uh, addition to a historical account. I don't think the tradition cares much about the historical account to begin with. That's that's kind of part of the argument in, in the book here. Um Buddha is, is, in a sense, the very, the very truth of being. Um, he's kind of like a god. He's not a god technically, but god with capital G in the kind of way that, that another, any other Indian god would be god, like Shiva. The manifesting in reality. I'm not saying, I mean, there, there are different ways to, to articulate this, but being this kind of deep principle of, of the Dharma of truth of uh, the correct way to live life. And, and so you have to understand that if you if you want to figure out what these, what the philosophy is aiming at, what the, the practice what the meditation is aimed to bring about and, and, and then in order to kind of really get my mind around or my heart or something around this concept of Buddha, um, I realized I got to understand what the texts are, and that's what kind of brought me to this project. Um, and um, there's something very interesting about it because like there's a, there's an, an inner statement about the dynamic that the, that, that moves the tradition. Uh, I think it's more important than the details. I um, have an opportunity to say a bit more about that, but maybe a little later.
1: Yeah, so um, you've moved from the, the philosophy to the Buddha to maybe maybe literature or narrative, um, which is the focus of this book. And maybe that's a good segue. What is, perhaps at a very high level, the the overarching argument of this book? What kind of intervention are you making in our uh, our methodology, our way of reading here? Okay, so that that's a big question. Um... Start you off with an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so... There
0: are different ways to kind of uh, to, to, to provide an answer. Um, see, the, again, the question is, what are the texts? It's true, that, and there's a side that, that I'm taking a literary approach. The word literary comes up a lot. I'm speaking about narrative and the importance of narrative for understanding the, the message of the text, for understanding the project, for understanding what early Buddhists did with texts, what, what it was for them. Um, we can't just, you know, take the philosophy as would fit our world and and forget about the whole context about what these people cared about. I mean, we can, but then we're not really understanding. It's not thick understanding. It's superficial. Um, so, so yeah, so one thing that I'm doing is that maybe that's like the simple answer is, is that I'm emphasizing the literary dimension of the text. They're telling stories. Actually, a point I don't think this comes out well enough in in the book is that they're really, really good at t- telling stories. There's there's uh, um, an adept ability to to hit the mark um, with stories about the Buddha and and to, to move audiences and and authors, right? The authors are kind of telling a story that, that, that moves them, no less no less it, um, moves their audiences. Um, and so there's an emotional key, uh, that the tradition is kind of trying to, to, uh, to hit. And, uh, and there's a beauty involved. Um, it's kind of easy to miss, you know, we're all familiar with this, um experience it. We read the text and we're kind of falling asleep because they're repeating the same statement again and again. But once we kind of understand that it, it's just like a method and we kind of learn how to pick up the project, we're like not just trying to get at the philosophy. So then we can see all these subtle moves that they're that they're doing. Um, Okay, so that's one thing, and I think it's been underemphasized. The way scholars have been reading is, is they they wanted. I mean, there's always this assumption that the Buddha was a philosopher. He provided a moral teaching, some guide for practice, different kinds of meditation, um, and a philosophy. Um, theoretically, I mean, people don't like to say this anymore that anything beyond that is is just like uh, propaganda or something, or kind of concessions to popular sentiment. We don't hear that as much as we used to or don't read that as much as we used to but that's a kind of uh, um, assumption i think that still works in the background of where many people approach the text both um popular audiences and scholarly uh and scholarly minds um and uh and and yeah so uh, a simple answer is: is, is I'm, I'm positioning the literary before the historical mode. These, the, the texts are not trying to tell a story. I guess maybe people understand that, but, but um, the, the, historic, the historical approach or the historicist approach just kind of misses the texts um, and trying to get them for the history, try, trying to read them for the history and the philosophy misses. The history and the philosophy, because a lot of the philosophy is in the narrative, and a lot of the history is in the way these people created the text and experienced them, and the kind of and the kind of experiences they were they were trying to generate. So that could be an, maybe the easier um, answer to your question. there's there's also a, um, a more specific answer uh, in the context of. Of the way these texts have been studied in in the field and Buddhist studies over the past I don't know, want to say 100 years but but certainly uh, since the 50s uh, 1950s the approach that compares the different versions of the text the Pali to the Chinese to the Sanskrit, when it becomes available in the Tibetan, or now we have Gandhari, and this is like the big boom, and when I kind of became a biologist, so, so, um, in the early 2000s, the 2000s, there were these Gandhari manuscripts being found, and, and then now we have these old texts, maybe almost 2000 years old, we can compare it to the other versions, and where is this taking us? So the assumption is that we get back to the to the early version, the true version, the original version. And, and so my argument in a sense is that it's time to stop this grasping at origins, that each text is a legitimate version in its own right. Um, making a, a valuable Buddhist statement within its own cultural context or maybe a more specific scholastic context, or, or, or I don't know, it could be a kind of study group, or, or just the inspiration of a particular author, there could be many different elements involved here. Um, so in a sense, that, that's the argument, that that when we read the text, there's a lot to find there except for the original version. In fact, the original version was maybe never there because the texts, um, I don't think, were fixed in this way, they're more like potentials or grids for a certain uh, kind of articulation, not necessarily a performance. That's a theme that that maybe needs to be addressed specifically. And that there's basically another simple way to say this is that there's a creative element involved in the shaping of the texts that people are trying to create different kinds of experience that they valued and cared about, aside from articulating a philosophy or a kind of theory of the path and practice, that there's an aesthetic dimension. This creative dimension is, is, I mean, I speak about it as being literary. Um, In many cases, I I, I speak about it as being literary. This doesn't mean they're writing texts. Of course, this is an oral culture. But it means it's kind of like... um, a storyteller um, would perform in a traditional context, or like an author, you know, a kind of uh, you know, Shakespeare or Cervantes or, or anyone like that tells his story, and and there's that kind of element in in the text. And in that sense, actually, this is this is true about many religious traditions, and the Buddhist case isn't all that special, um, but then. This creative element is also about uh, investigating the inner potential of the text, investigating their conceptual world, exploring it, moving towards new experiences. So I guess that was a bit of a long answer. Of course, I have more to say about this, but, but I hope that that works well enough as a kind of basic response to the overall argument.
1: No, I think it works really well. And maybe then in the spirit of this, I don't know, focus on living texts over originals, it's been a couple of years now since you actually put down the pen on the version of Visions of the Buddha that we have in print. And so I was hoping to ask you before we get into the details of it, if you'd like to reflect on uh, maybe the conversations you've been having since the talks you've been giving, the way your ideas are developed since uh, committing this particular version. If that makes sense.
0: <laughs> I like the way you frame that, it really resonates. The kind of point I'm trying to make, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I don't know exactly when I finished uh the book, and of course, um, there were different versions. Um, but basically, what happened, uh, is, what I haven't mentioned so far is like there's a there's an in a sense, the heart of the book is this theory. I call the play of formulas for um, for explaining the way um, early Buddhist discourses, the suttas, the Pali suttas. And generally, I'm speaking about this early level of the literature and how they were composed. Because we always have these formulaic elements, say eva mesuttam, this have I heard at one time, the Bhagavan the Buddha was at this and that place with this and those, and someone came and there's, there's always formulaic elements, some of them are narrative but I also say if we talk about jhana these deep meditations, or we talk about selflessness they, all, these, all these elements are, are, are framed in formulas they're all, they always come at us the same way in the text, the texts are repeating the same formulas again and again um so my idea basically, like the simple idea, is that like these are the basic texts and and then you kind of shuffle them around. An author could shuffle them around, and how this would happen is something we could kind of uh conjecture and and, and guess when and how this happened, if it was if he was alone or with a group of other monks or whatever but in any case the the point is that so long as you're basing your new text on these uh traditionally accepted elements then almost anything goes and anything makes sense and 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 the, the 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 way the formulas are combined can create new narratives and each one with their with its own subtle emphasis and um I was kind of hesitant to really say I've got a theory here for uh, how the texts were composed. I was uh, I was a bit timid, um, and I didn't um, I didn't want to to, to boast, and I, I I was trying to to kind of keep a low key and just kind of raise this idea uh, very gently, but basically first of all the response I got from the reviewers was uh, come out with it uh, so I did and, and, I, and, and, and the, the this theory and this this idea of the play of formulas has um uh, kind of become very, an, an important element in the, a more important element in the book. So that's what kind of maybe shaped the final version we have we have in print. But I have been giving a series of talks and talking with a lot of people about these ideas and receiving very, very good responses from a lot of people I, I respect a lot and uh, um, So today I mean if I would be writing the book again or if I'm thinking about what I'll be what I'll be moving on from here, I'm not quite sure if that's what you asked me or not. But um, so, if we're speaking about the player formulas, there, there are different games you can play, different types of games you can play. And the book mainly treats the long and middle length discourses, the Digha and Majjhima Nikayas. Um, but now I'm working more on the Samyutta Nikaya, and further down the road, the Anguttara. Um, and, and also, I'm doing some work on Vinaya. Again, Vinaya writes, so supposedly, this is like these kind of Buddhist histories, but then again, they're full of these narratives. And once you kind of open up to this uh, playful element and, and to the entertaining element of the text, to the fun involved, to the beauty, uh, things look kind of differently. So, so that's where I'm at kind of at the moment, um, uh, looking to kind of more confidently articulate this approach to, to the text, and to and to define the specific methods uh, through which different types of Buddhist scripture can be, um, could be, could have been back then put together.
1: So you, you've mentioned that at least in... The, in I hope I answered your question, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Um, but I, I was just thinking, you know, you've mentioned that in this version of the book that we have, you do focus um, mostly, if not exclusively, on the, the Diga and Nikayas, And that still gives you, of course, a vast amount of um of text to pull on. You do populate each chapter of the book with really detailed analyses of specific texts. But I was um I was wondering actually, just in, in your very first chapter, like your introductory chapter, Welcome Us into the Book, you focus just on one text, this um the Udambharaka Sutta. And I was wondering if you could maybe start to lead us into the content of the book by talking about that sutta, like why that sutta for the introduction. What insights do we get from it?
0: Great, it really is uh, one of my favorites. Um, but since the point is, you know, we could have done something else. You could have opened up uh, any any kind of book in the Nikayas and said, let's start here, and and we could have followed the way this. Text is interconnected with many other texts through these webs of formulas, and and we would choose one text and we'd see it appearing somewhere. You know, we'd search it, we'd see it, we'd see it appearing somewhere else, and and it would have a different kind of context, and we'd see how that formula is reapplied to suit that particular context. But so the Udbharya, in a sense, it's a, a text I discovered while looking at one formula. I was, um, and this is kind of how it all began. Began, there's this formula on, uh, the way that Buddha meets, uh, um, a rival renunciate teacher. So it's called, he's called a paribajaka, parivrajaka, in, in Sanskrit, someone who is, who has left the home life. And lots of people apparently did this in the Buddha's time. So this is one thing you could do here is kind of map out. Indian society as it appeared to the eyes of these Buddhist authors. So these Pali Vrajakas are Pali Bajikas in Pali, right, are, are very important figures. There's lots of them. And the Buddha meets them meets them very, very often. There's all different kinds of discussion with him. But the point is that he doesn't just um, meet them in some kind of random way. There's a formalized way through which a teacher, the Buddha will meet a paribbajika teacher, or or the paribbajika teacher will come visit the Buddha. And what happens often is, or or it happens especially in texts that the Buddha is going to teach uh, something about the values of silence. That we'll, we'll be told that the Buddha uh, woke up very early that day, had his meditation, was ready to go into town for alms, but it's just like too early. So uh, he says, maybe I'll go visit that teacher, the Paribajaka, who we've already been told is staying in this and that park, and he's got all these students and whatever, usually 500 students. And then the next thing they tell us is that these students are incredibly noisy, um, and they kind of have this very kind of beastly behavior, they would say, for an ascetic. Uh, they're sitting there and they're shouting and yelling and making all this noise and they're talking about women and about politics and about armies and about cars or chariots, that would be. Um, and all this gossip and about kings and whatever, you know. So, so you know, this is like not the true behavior for for renunciate. And um, the Buddha is nearing them and the teacher spots the Buddha and the teacher says... Um, well, uh, the teacher kind of shouts at his, his, his uh, students, his followers, telling them to be quiet because the Buddha likes quiet and maybe the Buddha will come visit them. Uh, and, and so they quiet down and the Buddha comes in and he offers and he, he gets up to greet him and welcome him and, uh, and, and says, it's been so long since you visited us and offers him to sit on the high seat, the prepared seat, that's basically his seat, the teacher's seat, and he sits to the side on a lower seat. So, uh, and then they have whatever exchange they want. It actually doesn't matter all that much what's going to happen now because we've been told such a good story. The point has been made. The Buddha's a top teacher. Everybody wants to study from from him. All other teachers will basically accept his uh, preeminence as the, the the best articulator of the Dharma. Um, and they want to learn from him, and he can always teach them how to improve their practices, and this is like going on again and again and again, because, and it's not just some kind of chance fact, it's, it's a metaphysical fact, because he's got the ultimate understanding of cosmos, of, the, of any, any possible fact, and in reality, like for the authors of these texts, he knows we're talking now, he knew back then or something, or he's, I don't know where he is now in a sense, but but he knows everything, in a completely comprehensive sense. And so so I was interested, this is like kind of the first formula that caught my mind. This is, uh, uh, I think I talked about it in a conference maybe six years ago or seven years ago that Natalie Gummer and the late Louis Gomez organized in Berkeley in the Mangalam Institute. And I talked about it back then. And then I was, you know, looking at all these different appearances and I found it in the Udumarika that before it, Um, there's a different kind of formula in which uh, a follower of the Buddha wants to go and uh, meet the Buddha, but he realizes it's too early again. So this is called, that was the too early for alms formula. This is the too early to come meet or see or take darshan of the Buddha. And the, the, the student will come up to uh, um, realize it's too early that they're in meditation, the Buddha and the monk, so they'll go meet the teacher. And then we get this whole element. Um, and then they're, again, the noisy, and in this case, the Buddha student sits to the side because he's a householder, his name is Santana. And um, then, uh, the the teacher says something kind of insulting about the Buddha, and of course the Buddha shows up miraculously, and now we'll get the whole formula again of the way the Paribagika meets the Buddha. So this is what I call the play of formulas, right? They, this the too early for alms formula, or too early to come meet the Buddha. They appear in many contexts. They're a way to frame a discourse. And here the Udumbarika is playing with the formulas, as it's adjusting them to this context in order to, to create the specific encounter it wants to create between the Buddha and the Paripajkha. And by the time we reach the philosophy of the text, so much has been going on. And this is the philosophy of the text, that the Buddha is the ultimate teacher and that all other, all other religious experts in India acknowledge his preeminence Um, And then, actually, then there comes teaching, and there's more to say about the way the discourse developed, but it basically echoes, in a sense, it brings out the the Buddha's ability to uh, be quiet. He knows true quiet, because he's cleared up all these inner kinds of, these upakilesas, these kinds of inner dirt. um, And... um, yeah. So 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 that um, that's like an example of the way these formulas they can be taken apart and put back together and combined with each other, and it's not like the, you know if they were trying to 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 give us some some reliable version of the Buddha's biography. So I'm sure there were different ways that he met Paribajaka teachers. It wouldn't always come in these formalized ways. And then what turns out is that there are specific formulas for specific characters, for Paribajakas or for different kinds of Brahmins. And then theoretically you have this kind of, I haven't gone through, like the whole corpus trying to identify all this, it's a it's a lot of work. It's one of the places I'd like to continue with this project is to identify all the literary characters in in the nikayas and and see the formula, formula formulas that define them. But also, there's like these formulaic molds of sequences of texts that you can like like narrative designs that also are are also relevant. Um, so so that's that's the main. Um, Kind of point I bring out in that first chapter and there's another point which is that uh, um, there are different versions of this text What right? I mentioned earlier how scholars like to compare the different versions but I won't go into the details here they're very kind of specific but say um, that, that, that one event in, in which the Buddha is coming in and the teacher comes to greet him so in the Chinese counterparts of this text they it's framed very differently and and they say different things uh that like they don't want to um to like in in one case the teacher is is he 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 like expresses this conviction that he's not going to get up but when the buddha comes he's comes, like overpowered by his majestic presence so that he gets up and greets him in in any case so you know, you're not going to say which is the true version here, what was added and what was disrupted. You see, and, and I mean, this is something you just kind of look at, you need to look at carefully in comparing the different versions. And here I was assisted also um, by a research assistant and helped me look at the Chinese versions. Um, you see that each version is, is a world of its own, creating its own kind of sets of meaning. Um, the Chinese text in towards these kind of more magical capacities of the Buddha. The Pali is very interested in like decorum and, and, and social relations. Um, so that's pretty much, yeah, I guess uh, uh, if I can make a precise of the chapter, that's pretty much it.
1: So I do obviously want to ask you a lot more about. Um maybe the purpose of both the decorum formulas and the the more magical formulas we see in the Chinese. But I wonder if this is actually a good place to to ask about formulas themselves. You offer a really lovely um, explanation of what you mean by formulas in the book, but perhaps for the benefit of our audience, what is a formula? How long is a formula? What counts as a formula?
0: Okay, so um, a formula can be, uh, you know, I mean, a formula... We, we all live by formulas, right? We started this talk and you introduced me and, you know, I thank you and all that. And, and that's just the way, you know, we're used to making these formulaic e- exchanges. So, so it's not it's not only about Buddhist texts, but um, in Buddhist texts, when you say eva mesuttam, that's, that's stuff I heard, you know, that's, that's already a formula. It means a fixed element, um, a fixed verbal sequence that is reproduced um, in many texts, or, or to often within a text, also so can also connect evamasuttam samaya bhagava, and I could could keep going at one time. The Buddha was staying in this and that place, and and it can be a very very long formula. Say in the Samanyapala Sutta, which is place of the second text in the Diganikaya, the the discourse on the fruits of being a samana, being a shramana—that that is a a recluse Um, it's a very very long text and it has a very long formula that gives it's called the Anububitsika the the sequential um, uh, the gradual training where uh, someone would realize that the Buddha is the supreme teacher, so that in itself is a formula, but it just opens a very very long formula after which that Person who realizes this will decide to leave the home life. And then there's all the different elements of morality um, that he practices. It's very long. Some of it is kind of humoristic, but ultimately it's saying and it begins with these more ethical elements. And then he also doesn't sit on high chairs and things like that, or he doesn't play backgammon or different kinds of chess, or he doesn't do somersaults. And um, it keeps going, and after this ethical element, he, he, um, there's always these kind of preparations for samadhi, um, including satipatthana, uh, establishing of mindfulness, including uh, uh, guarding the senses, uh, content. There's more than and then he enters jhana. And so this is like, you know, this goes over a couple of dozen pages, and that's and a formula. It's a fixed formula which they won't always repeat between texts because, you know, they also like to shorten things and to to get on with it. But then this is something I show in the second chapter of the book is is the way this particular formula is is adapted to the narrative context of of each text. So, So normally a formula will be like about a paragraph, but sometimes it will be combined with other formulas to make a sequence. So it's basically, you know, really the best analogy I have is Lego. There's different, you know, just like my kids play with Lego and there's blue and yellow and red and green and white pieces and they're different lengths and they can combine and be taken apart and you, you can make different things with them. that's, you know, formulas just done with words that are memorized and um, they, they're also an encapsulation of a teaching, but they're also an image of a teaching of uh, some social figure of the Buddha.
1: Does that answer? It does. And I'm so glad you brought up the Legos. I I really love that analogy in the book. (laughs) Um, So so you make the case for this play of formulas, looking at the Uttambarakasutta in chapter one, chapter two, you sort of expand this approach in some ways, it seems, um, looking at the Sila of the Nikaya. What do we get out of perhaps reading across several shorter texts rather than the sustained focus on one text as in chapter one?
0: um well i mean in this case for example like what i just mentioned the sila um, uh you can see the way the formula is reapplied to each literary context but you can also take i take another text it's a very beautiful very very be- moving kind of story about this uh, uh, monk uh, mahamogalana he's a magical monk and he goes up to heaven and uh, uh India's uh, sakka, that is the king of the gods' palace uh, because he won't uh, uh, share with him the teaching that the Buddha has has uh, given him so you see here, like in this one kind of very beautiful liter- literary crafted formula, you see here um, how uh, the, the story which is like a myth, is also a uh, um, a kind of symbolic representation of Mahamukulana's meditation, with the with the god realms as a kind of uh, states states of bliss that he experiences in meditation. Um, so I mean, they're not to be seen here. They're they as I said at the beginning. They're very very good, very capable storytellers. They're always doing more than we expect, and uh, we shouldn't be just kind of catching at the the content at the external. Um, the external kind of manifestation of their way of thinking in the text themselves, there's an inner dynamic that is more important to them, and that's this dynamic of formulas. And um, in a sense, that dynamic itself is a kind of teaching of anicca, of impermanence, of conditionality, of the way things, of anatta, right, selflessness, the way things kind of come together and fall apart, and there's just no essence anymore. You're just kind of traveling along this vast web of, of, formulas and, and grasping in origins, would just kind of be missing the point.
1: We're all caught in Brahma's formula, Jala. What can we do? Yeah. All right. So I, I really wanted to ask you in a little detail about, um, Chapter three, when you you talk about mindfulness of the Buddha is really a central concern in many of these formulas. And it's something you've indicated already. You're talking about sort of relations to brahmins. the Buddha is the supreme teacher. Um, But I think it's in chapter three, you really make this case that that mindfulness of the Buddha is a central concern of many of these texts. Um, Would you care to speak a little to that? I'd,
0: I'd love to and in a sense that's that's that was kind of the basic understanding and, and you know talking about all this stuff about it's like i'm talking too much because i have too much to say but in a sense you know you're that's the point like um the texts mind are mindful are, are kind of you could call it meditative practice or contemplative practice or just imaginative imaginative um uh, method of uh, imagining the Buddha, mindfulness of the Buddha, Buddha Anuswiti or Anusati, um, trying to tell me beautiful stories about the Buddha, um, is is itself is a major goal of what the tradition is doing. You know, we're not going to get enlightened tomorrow. The more we connect to the Buddha. This is like the point where, where I assume the authors were thinking the more, the more we connect to the Buddha, the more we kind of absorb the Dharma, the more we absorb his path and his instruction. Um, and then kind of imagining the Buddha has always been a central element of, uh, uh, of Buddhist practice. This is very apparent in early Mahayana and later in Tantra. And specifically, I mean, the Mahaparinirvana Sutta is exactly the text. That, that scholars actually, did, you know, over, over in an overly historical way, looking for, as if it mattered, you know, where he went from town to town. The point is that he said goodbye from each town. And, and each time he went there was the last visit. And this is the, the, this deep metaphysical point. That this is the last time that this enlightened present. Presence was at this particular place, and so the text is a very sad text it's an it's a um an attempt to say goodbye uh to cope with the loss and saying that the Buddha was here and then he moved there and then he moved there. And then it's circling in on this place where he dies, and, and all the magic around his death. And the first time that he says, I'm tired, I'm going to lie down. I'm going to sit down and then I'm going to lie down. And then he lies down for, for the last time. And, it, and it's an incredibly moving story when, when, when we listen to it, even though it's like copy pasted from everywhere in the, in, in the canon. Um, the whole text is just like reproducing formulas we have in, in other places, but the way they're kind of strung together in this um, mindfulness of the Buddha practice of saying goodbye to the Buddha and imagining the, the way he left the world um, tells us a lot about, about this, this Buddhist textual project.
1: So I hope you won't mind me maybe jumping around the book a little bit here, but I just really wanted to zero in on um, uh, one really interesting argument you make, actually in the, it's the next chapter now, I think about it, chapter four, you're talking about folklore, you even have this idea of Buddhist fun, and obviously these are categories which are often overlooked in Buddhist studies, particularly sort of early textual studies, um, other than arguments about orality, the Paralood theory. So what do we gain by renewed attention to folklore and to thinking about Buddhist texts as being folkloric?
0: Right. I was hoping you were going to ask me about that chapter because, you know, might as well, you know, rather than being so dramatic and metaphysical and emotional and all this narrative stuff, you know, let's have some fun. You know, what do we miss? If we miss out on that, we miss out on the fun and we miss out. I mean, again, you know, on the more kind of theoretical level, we kind of miss out on what the texts were for these people. Now, now, um, I'm not saying all they're doing is trying to have fun. You know, if you have some kind of, you know, deep teaching of anatta and, you know, someone's realizing it, you know, it's not just like uh, some kind of entertaining moment. You know, we're going to have a laugh as if we're watching Netflix, but some of it is the Netflix of, of, um, uh, or the primetime TV of, I don't know, say the third century BC, uh, in India, in this, in this Pali world, in this, in this, early buddhist world and and yeah that's what they were doing i mean this is a pretty f- hilarious story you know like like um i mean the, the prime episode maybe i shouldn't give a spoiler you know until we have something kind of funny and 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 wild in buddhist text and it's in you know this academic book you know maybe let the readers meet it but there are other funny stuff there you know um, uh, maybe i'll give like the second the second best highlight there, so the Buddha predicts that this naked ascetic, you know, imagine this guy is a naked naked ascetic. He must be like an idiot. Of course, this is what the Buddhists are thinking, right? And they want to bring this out, but th- these are also ascetics and some people think that they're very, you know, serious practitioners and they're going to be enlightened or something or they may be already, you know, beyond attachment. And the Buddhists are saying, you oh, know, these guys, they don't know a thing. And so the Buddhists, P- Buddhists the Buddha, he predicts that this like one of his these these naked ascetics, a chelo, is uh, another kind of paribaja. That he's going to die of uh, uh, um, what is it? Uh, is it a kind of dysentery, or is that the next guy? Um, kind of getting confused, but but anyhow, he knows he's going to die within a week, and that he's going to be reborn in a really kind of bad destination. And so his follower, who's the Buddhist student, also. Goes and warns him and tell him, Be careful about what you eat and whatever. But you know, what can you do? The Buddha's predicted it. It's like a spell. The Buddha's words in these texts are like they have a special power. Um, it's one of the questions embedded within this text is what happens when the Buddha says something? Is that just a description, or is that like creating the definite possibility that this that this potential event will will take place? And um so of course the guy dies and the and his follower his supporter like comes rushing to the to the charnel ground and he picks him up and and he punches him and the corpse gets up and he's rubbing his back he's like dizzy and 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 well uh, what can you do all he can all he can say is confirm that the Buddha's prediction about his inferior rebirth was was correct you know so you know you figure this this kind of story and there are others like it this is one of the things i've been looking at since since then you know there's always this there's, there's always dramatic so this is you know this kind of pretty funny event uh not all this stuff is funny this is like a good example of of a funny text um uh, and uh, but there are other other dramatic uh, so do you think this may have been stage once you know it could have been brought people to have a good laugh and I think you know you asked about folklore you would expect you know I mean just take uh, yeah, the, the Bible or the Quran or, or any religious text it's, it's, it's absorbing you know the imaginative world of the people of the society in which the text took shape and 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 you know we call it folklore there i've I, I don't think that there's a very such a deep divide between religion and folklore religion in a sense is institutionalized folklore in which like the the most uh wonderful supernatural stories we have that that, that say something about our history are kind of given a canonical status um but on a more simple level, you know, this is like, you know, the kind of pe- stories people like to tell. And and um, I think that's part of this, the context in which these texts sure. say, put, were put together. And one of the concepts that I'm kind of left with, moving on with this project, which was kind of laying the foundation, the book kind of lays the foundation for, for a new way of reading, for a new approach to the text. One of the concepts I'm really... Uh, left with is just storytelling storytelling and versions um, it doesn't mean that the texts are, are recordings of performances or outlines for performances but it, they certainly relate to these performances and and that's something I discussed in that chapter which is uh, which is pretty funny I mean I don't know how funny I write things but the story is funny well Tati
1: Obviously there's, there's a lot more in the book we could talk about. I'm conscious that we've taken up a lot of your time, but I just wanted to ask you, perhaps we could wrap up. Um, what's what's the one thing that you hope that our feel takes away from this book, um, methodologically, theoretically, or just having a good laugh at some funny stories in the Pali canon?
0: That's a, that's a real question. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I talk too much about all this stuff, and, of course, there's, there's more to say. Um, I think it kind of bottles down. I mean, you know, they're big questions. You know, we, we write all these books and we read all these books, and what are we doing in, in the humanities? What are, what are we – I think, you know, one of the things we're doing is to empathically reach out to the people we study, um, even if they're in the historical past, it, it, it's also trying to understand ourselves, and if we're our understanding ourselves as just uh, or, or, or humanity, as if you know, there's all that matters is. I mean, if history is about the facts um, and these external events, and not about people's hearts and and minds and and the cosmos, the inner cosmos they created to live in. The, the world of meaning they generated. And that's kind of what I'm trying to, I think. I mean, I'm not quite sure um, what the one thing I'm after or, or I want people to join me in, in, in searching for, if, if that's it. But, but I, I think that's kind of coming off kind of uh, the top of my head. Um, yeah, I think that, that that would be it. It would be to to be able to imagine the the world of, of the early Buddhists in this case and and generally um, the people we study certainly in Buddhist studies as you know real human beings with hearts and minds and 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 to try to understand what they really saw when they saw reality what they're seeing was about what their what their experience was about what their consciousness was like um, and and uh, some of this is in a sense like getting into the dynamic that's within the text is meant to to take us closer to the real people there and to their world um, rather than kind of coming at it from the outside and, and, you know, getting stuck on the facts, which sometimes, which sometimes can also be important and, and relevant and we can learn from that approach too. Well,
1: that is a fantastic ending. Thank you so much for that thought. And thank you so much for joining us um, on the the Buddhist Studies channel today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you.
0: Thanks so much, uh, Bruno. I really appreciate this. And it's uh, really fun talking with you about these materials.
1: All right, until next time.
0: Bye-bye.